LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Gary Lackman who joins us to discuss his book Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. Colin Wilson was a literary and cultural rebel and one of the most adventurous, hopeful and least understood visionary intellects of the past century. Author of over a hundred books including the 1956 classic The Outsider, Wilson pervaded a philosophy of mind power and human potential that made him arguably the only optimistic existentialist. In part one, we outline Wilson's core philosophy and worldview, which saw the purpose, meaning and destiny of humanity, and indeed all life, in the evolution of consciousness toward ever more expansive states of complexity and awareness. Although Wilson felt that in many ways Western civilization has hit a dead end, he ultimately rejected responses rooted in nihilism and negativity. For Wilson, consciousness does not passively reflect the world. Rather, it reaches out and grabs it. Perception, he believed, is participatory and we are active agents in shaping reality. However, our inculcated fear of responsibility, of freedom, and of our own creative capacity for greatness keeps most of us mired in a meaningless, mechanistic view of the universe drifting between hedonism and despair. Many of us ask if there is more to life than this, and the answer is a resounding yes. As Wilson himself wrote, my life's task is to light a fire with damp sticks. The drizzle falls incessantly, yet I feel that if only I could really get the blaze started, it would become so large and so fierce that nothing could stop it. Hello and welcome, Gary, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Entirely my pleasure, Greg. Okay, Gary, today we're going to be discussing um, a book of yours. It was actually published last year, and it's entitled Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. Um, Before we get started, um, as per usual, just give listeners... A little brief bio of yourself and uh, a word about your work in general. As uh, Greg said, um, I'm uh, my name is Gary Lockman, and I'm a writer, uh, more or less, I would say, guess of sort of um, history of consciousness or history of um, esoteric philosophy. Um, and I used to be a musician uh, many years ago in my uh, late teens and um, early twenties. Um, in New York, I was in um, a band called Blondie, later on to become quite successful. But it was around that time, in the mid-70s, when I first came across um, 
the sort of thing that I write books about. And uh, it's very apropos to, to say that because it was indeed um, a book by uh, Colin Wilson called The Occult that introduced me to um, all the sort of thing I've been uh, reading about since then. That's 1975. And I've been writing about it um, pretty steadily for you know, a little bit more than 20 years now. Um, and uh, generally, it's about uh, this kind of counter tradition in the Western um, uh, culture, um, what's called rejected knowledge uh, by uh, the um, historian James Webb, uh, which includes all these aspects of occultism or Gnosticism or esotericism. And on um, sort of the uh, psychological side of that, that deals with phenomena states of consciousness, higher consciousness, uh, but also bleeding into the paranormal and occult phenomena, things of that sort. And um, as Greg uh, mentioned, um, along with writing a book about the work of Colin Wilson and telling his story, I've written about um, people like uh, Rudolf Steiner and C.G. Jung and uh, Madame Blavatsky and Swedenborg, and also more general kind of histories of uh, the whole story, the narrative of the influence of these esoteric ideas on, on the West. Okay, so in my introduction to the show, I've set out for people who don't know briefly who Colin Wilson was and uh, why his work's so important. Um, but just for a personal perspective, you, you mentioned there briefly how you first encountered his work. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about you know that first moment or what you remember about finding that first book of his, mm. why he's, his work has been so important to you. And and then again, briefly, just why and when this book, I mean, it, if anyone knows your work, then this will feel like something that was almost inevitable that you would do this. But mm -hmm. ju ju just at what point you said, okay, the Colin Wilson book, now is the time. Right. Well, um, sadly, it was because of his, um, he, he, you know, he passed away. Uh, he died in uh, 2013. Um, but I mean, I first came across, as I mentioned, I first came across his book, The Occult, when I was um, living in New York. I was uh, um, playing bass guitar in uh, Blondie. This is before I became you know, very famous. And we were living in this um, <clears throat> sort of uh, very rundown uh, loft space on the Bowery. And um, I wasn't interested in anything about the occult uh, before this. I mean, aside from sort of horror films or, you know, H.P. Lovecraft and sort of weird fiction, but I didn't sort of, you know, particularly interested in the paranormal or the esoteric or anything like that, for real. But I had, you know, but I had read, you know, philosophy and people like Nietzsche and Jung and Hesse and, and you know, um, people of that sort and kind of the counterculture, sort of canon, Alan Watts and Suzuki and things of that kind. But in in the sort of milieu I was in, the, the, the you know, the people I knew, there are a lot of books from that uh, generation, sort of the you know, 60s into the early 70s generation when they were very interested in the occult. It was a, the occult revival. In fact, my first book, Turn Off Your Mind, is about the occult revival of the 1960s and its influence on pop culture. Um, but I remember coming across, um, and also where we were living in this loft space, there was this uh, uh, artist, this very flamboyant um, Wild character, who uh, was very much into Aleister Crowley, famous or infamous magician of uh, the 20th century, and um, he would do these sort of impromptu tarot card readings uh, with one of Crowley's, the Crowley deck, which at that time uh, was it was still rather rare. So I just found myself living in this kind of um, sort of milieu again, where 
even even though it wasn't kind of the central thing at the time, these sort of cult, mystical, magical ideas were still kind of around. And I just remember, um, because of this fellow getting interested in Crowley, and so I picked up a book of his off somebody's bookshelf, and then I also saw just this book, this thick book, The Occult, and I picked it up, and um, I just remember what interests me about it immediately, aside from the fact that I was getting interested in this occult stuff because of, you know, what, what I was, um, was that he was talking about people like um, Nietzsche or, or, or Camus or Sartre or, or uh, psychologists um, or uh, philosophers, and it wasn't uh, just sort of a book of spells or it wasn't a sort of, you know, history of um, hauntings or things of that sort. It was something about consciousness. It was something much more about the powers of the mind. And uh, I didn't know any, you know, I, it just was, I hadn't read anything like this before, the way he talked about Essa and people like this. And there were people I knew about and there were people I didn't know. And he just had such a good style. It was such a wonderful, readable narrative style. Um, and I just became sort of, um, you know, um, just a fan, just from starting reading it. And many, well, not that many years later, but some years later, I mean, um, as time went on, when I was playing in Blondie and then in my own band, I had a band called The No, uh, the name of the band that was like based on my interest in Gnosticism. So this was one of the things that grew out of reading and other books about uh, the occult at that time, you know, because I was reading. Because uh, uh, also at the time, there was this, there, there was a, a kind of big occult boom. There were a lot of um, uh, sort of cut price um, discount um, reprinted occult classics very cheap in New York at that time. Um, so just as I was getting interested in it, there was a lot of it around. So I just started, you know, gobbling up uh, as much of it as I could and reading it and all that. So I, I uh, just developed a, a real fascination with it. And uh, But Wilson's book just opened me up to so many other things because, as you say, one of the things that he does is he he writes about a lot of other people and material, and he puts them together. He, he makes a whole out of these uh, otherwise rather disparate kinds of things, or things that are um, you know, sort of kind of related, but they're they're not you know they're the way they fit together into a kind of intelligible kind of uh, picture of, of things isn't immediately um, you know accessible. And um, some years later, about 1983, after reading many of his books and and uh, hunting them down in uh, uh, bookshops in the States, um, and I'll get on to his most famous book, the one you mentioned already, The Outsider, uh, which is, he was most famous for. Um, but uh, I went on this kind of mini search for the miraculous in, in, in Europe, uh, in U England, and, and then in, onto, onto the continent, and um, part of which um, <clears throat> involved my going down to um, Mevagizzi, which down uh, was down in Cornwall, uh, here in, in the UK. And, you know, almost at the end, uh, which is where he lived from the sort of late 50s on. Uh, I went down there and um, just spent a day, and he was very, very friendly, and, you know, we just discussed his ideas and his ideas about consciousness and phenomenology and existentialism and all this sort of stuff. And then after that, um, maintained a correspondence, and over the years, we uh, I visited down there again, and he, when he at one point he came to Los Angeles, where I was living at the time, and he stayed with me while he was giving a series of talks around there. So um, we developed, um, you know, a friend. I mean, a friendship in the, but in the sense, obviously, he had many other uh, people who were interested in his, in his books and sought him out and talked to him. I mean, he was very generous 
um, his place down in Cornwall became a kind of uh, kind of conduit because you know every, every anybody was going down that part of the world who was interested in any of these kinds of things. And Wilson wrote about so many different things. I mean, that's one of the aims of Beyond the Robot is to <clears throat> show that even though he wrote about so many different things, he wrote about the occult, he wrote about philosophy, uh, he wrote about crime, he wrote about sex, uh, he wrote about psychology. Um, they're all related. Um, uh, they're all linked together. They all come out of a central uh, kind of question for him, which is what he calls the paradoxical nature of freedom. Um, so I, um, <clears throat> and at one point, um, I started writing um, books my, myself uh, when I moved from Los Angeles uh, to London in 1996. I started writing articles in the early 90s and book reviews while I was still uh, in Los Angeles and doing different things. I was uh, working at a uh, New Age bookshop for a while called the Bodhi Tree. This is one of the most, uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but for a while it was the most famous sort of metaphysical bookshop west of the Rockies. And um, I was working in, as a science writer for a while. But um, uh, basically they went through sort of midlife crisis uh, and um, was flown across the Atlantic to, um, to London. I started write, you know, writing full on since then. Yes, well, you mentioned uh, Colin Wilson's The Occult, uh, which is actually published in 1971, as that was your first encounter with him. And that, as I mentioned to you off air, was mine as well. I think I told you in a previous interview, actually, that when I was getting into this sort of stuff, which is when I was a teenager, uh, shall we just say, you know, the esoteric, uh, the unusual, the bizarre, the paranormal, um, there was nothing in the little town I lived in that would cater for any of that. Um, meal order was a little bit difficult because not very many people did this stuff that that means. But in the neighboring town, which was about 15 miles away, there was a guy who had a little ramshackle bookstore in a basically a covered market. And I say bookstore, it was essentially what looked like a storage unit with books piled from floor <laughs> to ceiling, you know, and he sat in there in looking like a cat weasel kind of sm smoking little roll ups. And uh, there never seemed to be anyone in there apart from him. But uh, that's where I found my copy of The Occult. And I'm drawn actually by the cover artwork. It wasn't the lurid green cover. That, All right. Which that, one was that? Uh, the one I have has got, has got black with some kind of occult type symbolism, um, some kind of esoteric magical symbolism on the front. So I don't All know right. if it was a later edition or not. Um, I can see yeah. it from I can see it from here, but I can't reach it unfortunately. Oh right, right. Yeah. Well, he 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 said he detested that um, sort of horrible green, but they stood out. To tell you, that's one thing I remember. You know, looking out for there was that whole series of his paperbacks, uh, uh, paperbacks, mm -hmm. novels, and you know other books that um, I guess it was Granada put them out and Panther, and they had um, they were more or less dark covered, but they had his name, you know, very bold white sort of print. Very recognizable, striking kind of covers. But the copy of the occult I had was an American edition, and it had this strange kind of psychedelic, um, weird, almost fractal, you know, illustration on it. Yeah, I suspect I suspect the one I've got is just a later reprint, yeah. uh, later edition, and they just got rid of the green cover, maybe because of negative feedback from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and I went back to the same bookstore, and then I found another one of his books, which was The Outsider, as you mentioned, uh, his first book, which is published in 1956. I, I didn't read The Outsider until a couple years later uh, myself, because like yourself, I got I was very much initially interested in um, all the occult, you know, um, material, and there was so much after just reading his book, The Occult. There was Crowley, and there was uh, 
uh, Gurdjieff and Uspensky and um, and just, as I said, at the, unlike yourself, when I was living in New York, um, there was just a lot of stuff. There was stuff about the Golden Dawn. There was uh, Israeli Israel Regardi's books, and then the UK seemed to be producing lots of stuff. Francis King um, was another one who wrote about Crowley and you know sex and magic and things like that. And um, and of course there was the the wonderful um, Morning of the Magicians, which was you know one of these books that. It's full of, you know, errors, and it's just, you know, um, in many ways, um, just, just wrong. But it's also, you know, very exciting and, and uh, um, you know, stimulating kind of book. And so, um, but when I left Blondie's and moved to Los Angeles, and I kind of started again, I remember finding um, outside. I, I tell the story. I, I, I mean, I, I wrote about it somewhere. I don't remember exactly, but I'm actually, you know, after leaving Blondie, and then. Um, being in LA, uh, before I got my own band together, I had to, you know, just basically, you know, get a job. And I found up, you know, going, you know, looking for work on point, being just very, very discouraged. Uh, and, uh, I remember going to a bookshop, bookshop to look for work in the bookshop. And it was just very, very discouraging and all that. And, um, decided I was going to sort of console myself by, by buying a book or something and, you know, forget about looking for work. And I remember looking and what I found was Wilson's The Outsider. And it was actually you know, probably the right time and place because it spoke to me. Yes, I'm one of these characters. And yes, you're right. It's not about the occult. It starts out. It's about existentialism. It's about this, 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 this figure, uh, this kind of character in society, alienated, seeking this kind of more intense experience, uh, what in the gospels they call life more abundant. Um, I, I would say, if, if you know Wilson's work, and if you read that, and, and, and you know, because that's the book he always refers to in practically all, all of his other books. He's, he talks about these characters, the outsiders, and they're all different ones. And, but they all share this kind of common, this kind of hunger or, or search for intensity, for, you know, deeper meaning and purpose and, and, a, and, a, and a more powerful kind of uh, experience of consciousness. Um, his first book, this is one that you said before, it came out in 1956 when he was 24. Um, and, uh, a worldwide famous, um, you know, for a while, then he, then he became infamous. The press and the critics turned against him. And that's, that's another story and I tell in the book. But, um, the same kind of intensity of consciousness that he was talking about in, say, paranormal or mystical, uh, cult terms in the occult. It, it grows out of this obsession that uh, he had himself and that, that he also saw in these figures, figures like Nietzsche or, or T.E. Lawrence or the painter Van Gogh or Nijinsky, the, 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 the dancer, um, and many others who either went mad or um, you know, blew their brains out or sought out some kind of danger in order to feel this kind of, you know, more intensity of experience. And... Um, I remember at the time when I <laughs> found The Outsider, that book, I just, you know, I, I, I related to it, you know, uh, very much. And that, that's not too unusual experience because there were many people who, you know, when the book came out, it was very, you know, popular. And then also some, you know, famous people were quite, you know, taken with it. But uh, I didn't come across it until, you know, it came out, as you said, 56. I came across it in 1977. So it's, you know, 20, 21 years later. But I was about I was about 21 years old when I came across it, so it really struck me, you know. And also in my own position, in, in a smaller way, where I had I had been involved, I 
well, Blondie, you know, I left them when they were just about on their way to become, you know, very famous and successful. I had some success with them. A couple songs of mine uh, you know, did well, and so on. But I had kind of come left that to do my own, pursue my own, you know, uh, ideas, my own musical um, work. Um, and so I became an outsider. And so I, I very much identified with um, this theme, and, and he explores it in, in a variety of these different people. And also, you know, again, I, I had read about existentialism in, in as, as many people did, you know, um, you know, Sartre and Camus, um, and, you know, um, looks like nausea and the Sisyphus and the stranger and so on. So he's talking about these kinds of themes and it's all about, again, it's about meaning and purpose and facing nihilism and, and, and this, this kind of, uh, tension between ultimate yes and ultimate no and the outsider is someone who has this kind of double vision he sees this vision of chaos and and absurdity but then every now and then he has these sudden overwhelming moments of affirmation the world seems transformed and it's 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 seen as you know eternally good uh, you know uh, this kind of blakeian vision of, of um, you know um, the world um, you know as it truly is eternal and all that so that's that kind of tension in these characters he's writing about and then he in the books that follow the outsider the, in fact just recently um i wrote an introduction to a new edition of his second book called religion and the rebel which became which was completely trashed when it came out and um in some ways would have ended many other sort of people's careers but uh, wilson carried on but he develops these ideas that he first proposes in the outsider um in different ways and in one he sees can we find a religious you know solution to the outsider's problems and then he sort of writes himself through these different possibilities and then uh, after the first two books which have a kind of intensity and very romantic passion he actually becomes more the kind of writer that he's going to be for the rest of his career which is you know very readable but you know much much less sort of passionate tense and um, more and more just interested in the ideas themselves and becoming more clear of himself that he's seeing a way through to to somehow answer the outside or solve the outsider's dilemma which is essentially a way of achieving these kind of states of affirmation at will you know, consciously with not not you know not relying on them happening by chance well, Wilson was not only unusually prolific as a writer. I mean, he ranged widely across topics, as we've already hinted at, in contrast to a trend which would have been in place then, but uh, you know, it's just kind of like a Enlightenment sort of trend or a scientific age trend of specialism. He was definitely a big picture guy. That's what makes him not only so readable, but so attractive to a certain type of mind that's, uh, you know, magpie-like, is interested in, in everything because everything's inherently interesting and his multi and interdisciplinary approach i think is very important and that's one of the kind of corners we painted ourselves into these days is being unable to see the big picture because we're focusing in on little details and getting lost in them and we're uh, failing to pick up on things from one discipline that actually inform important aspects of another and therefore we're really kind of venturing down all these millions of little cul-de-sacs when actually a lot of uh, ideas and concepts and insights it brought together would give us perhaps a more of a light bulb moment about, um, you know, things that we're, we're searching for. And in many ways, uh, people who are critical of Wilson can sort of say, is, yeah, he's just 
dipping his toe into all these things and superficially and there's just too many ideas but of course the whole point is when you do look at the big picture as he did there's in, in some ways there's essentially one idea really the one idea for me reading Wilson is that kind of our civilization at the time when he started writing and is even more relevant today has kind of hit a bit of a dead end mm. the evolution of the species our species is about the evolution of consciousness and that's kind of what i take away from it and that's what i that's what i see uh between the lines and often closer to the surface in that than that in everything that he's written no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he was, I mean, he, he, he felt that we actually, all appearances to the contrary, we were, we were on sort of the brink of a, of a, you know, possible evolutionary leap because of the insights that he felt he had achieved in, in, um, into consciousness and its history. Of, uh, and one of the things he talks about is, you know, the development of the imagination, the 18th century on with the, the rise of the modern novel and the romanticism and how these in themselves show a distinct shift, change, and, and development in consciousness away from the kind of enlightenment, which at the same time, Wilson is an irrationalist. He's very rational. I mean, he's very scientific. He started out in his, in his early days um, as um, you know, an adolescent. He had, he had a deep interest in science. And that was the first thing he wanted to do. And it was only after um, um, he got into his sort of late, later teens and he started... Um, writing and going through these kinds of sort of existential, you know, the experiences he had, um, became suicidal at one point and so on and so on, that um, he realized that actually what, you know, he, he wanted to do was, was to write and to explore this kind of question of the meaning of human life, the meaning of human existence. Um, but, uh, so he doesn't want to sort of jettison the scientific, but he wants to broaden it. He, he, uh, he's very, he, he writes about romantics, romantics very much and the kind of ecstatic states that the romantics, romantic poetry, and you know uh, Shelley and Keats and uh, Wordsworth and so on. And um, but he's also critical of the kind of uh, overindulgence in the sort of ex ecstatic states because he's he's very much about learning control of consciousness. And control is a bad word, but they can control in the same way of someone driving a car or uh, someone playing a musical instrument or uh, you know or, or doing any creative work in that sense where um, the the enlightenment view or the sort of what's usually called sort of the Cartesian view, is that consciousness is a sort of passive uh, mirror. It, it, it reflects the world out there, and it, it does it whether it wants to or not. There's no sort of effort. There's no exertion behind it. You know, we open our eyes, we just see it. It's there. Um, but through uh, through his reading of um, German philosopher Edmund Husserl uh, in the early 20th century, who um, developed this philosophical um, method called phenomenology, uh, out of which later more culturally uh, widely known movements like existentialism grew. Wilson came to understand that this was um, an inaccurate view of how consciousness actually works. It's it's um, Husserl said that perception is, is is intentional. We're not aware of this intention consciously, but there is a kind of subconscious exertion or will to perceive and one of the examples Wilson gives is that you know if you're in a hurry or if your mind's elsewhere and you look at your watch to see what time it is um, you may you may physically see the watch you know the sense impressions are registered in that sense but 
because your mind is elsewhere, which is a curious way to talk about it, um, you didn't take in the time. And so you may, you may have seen it, but you didn't actually remember it. So you, you, you didn't intend it enough. You didn't intend viewing. And so you actually have to go back and hmm, make some kind of little effort to be able to actually take in the time. And so, um, this is, this is the sort of the fundamental insight that Wilson takes from Husserl and phenomenology, and which he says later philosophers like Heidegger and Sartre and uh, other existentialists sort of lost track of, is this intentional element in all of our perception. And he links this intentionality to mystical states, or a term he borrows from the American psychologist Abraham Maslow, who's the sort of father of humanist psychology, uh, peak experiences, these, these certain, certain moments of joy, or what um, the writer G.K. Chesterton called absurd good news. It's this kind of this sudden moments of delight um, or, you know, deep contentment. And these are states that, for Wilson, show that, you know, the kind of passive, static consciousness that the modern West, since the Enlightenment, the kind of clockwork, you know, human beings are sort of, you know, sort of like stimulus-response robots, as John Locke said. There's nothing in the mind that didn't get there first through the senses. So, uh, from that point of view, you know, unless you see, unless you have any kind of sensory input, we're, our, our minds are sort of empty, like an empty flat. Go out and buy stuff to fill it up with. And so, but Wilson is saying, no, it's not like that. You sort of, the mind is actually, it's not this kind of box that things get put into. It's, it's actually a kind of reaching out. It's reach, it's reaching out to whatever it is out there. That's, that's beyond us. But through its intentions and through its structuring of our experience, it kind of creates the world around us. And so this gives the mind and consciousness a much more creative, powerful, intentional aspect. And this is the kind of thing that he looked into or he investigated, he explored, you know, from more than 50 years in, in, in uh, about 200 books. I forget the exact uh, figure, but as you said, he was prolific. One of the things I always found so refreshing about Colin's writing and his ideas, and again, you've touched on this a few times there, is the essential optimism, this kind of forward thrust. For me, I was always turned off in philosophy and, and other quote-unquote disciplines by the underlying sense, and sometimes very uh, much this came to the surface, a sense of nihilism and mm. misanthropy and this kind of Malthusian rancor often driven, it occurred to me, by the people propagating this by their own self-loathing. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what it seemed to me. Or in the case of someone, for example, like a popular writer today, like Richard Dawkins, by their own self-regard. Um, mm -hmm. Self-loathing, self-regard, you can be two sides of the same coin. And I remember, uh, again, around the time when I first picked up on Wilson, I say 84, 85, at school at that time, in literature classes, we were being forced to read Graham Greene, Thomas Hardy, and I was just These in, are the people he detests. In despair. Why am why are we reading this bullshit? Because yeah. it's like I, what I kept thinking was in all these characters and all their choices, this is it is a choice. Think differently and you can change this. And there's just this sense of inevitable doom about it all that I yeah. just could not stand. The only book in recent times that I, although I fit, tend to finish all the books I start, the only one I've ever had a, a red pen out and written all over, and I was reading it with a view to interviewing the author, and at the end of it, I thought, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. It was uh, the philosopher uh, John Gray, 
And oh, right. It was his book. Well, he's, he's another doomsayer. Yeah. yeah, it was his book, Black Mass, and it's the only thing that I've, that I've defaced with a red pen. So the, <laughs> the, the, the essential thrust here was that Wilson, with him, I just felt like this is someone else who thinks like me. Um, not, you know, saying that I aspire to somehow uh, be such a, a, a thinker on a level with, with Colin or to express myself in that way. But the point was, I felt there was a kindred spirit there. And it's why, it's why that after reading his, one of his last books, Super Consciousness, I resolved to interview him and I was so disappointed and uh, upset to find out that he actually passed away shortly after, you know, so. It's a shame. Yeah. No, but I, I, I agree with you. I think, um, and this is exactly what Wilson says in his books about literary criticism, um, or, um, you know, liter- literature, uh, is, um, yeah, this, this whole tone of, um, pessimism. I mean, I guess the whole, I guess the idea is that it somehow seems more serious, um, more mature, more real, in quotation marks, because, uh, I guess the assumption is, yes, we would all, the, we would all like the world to be, you know, much nicer, would help, you know, you know, you know what I mean, uh, there'd be reason for optimism and all that kind of thing, but, we also know it's not really like that and so on and so on. And this is the kind of thing that he sort of argued against and made him so unfashionable. Uh, Green was, you know, someone he, um, he, he loves to tell the story about when Graham Green was a teenager, um, and was bored to tears. He found a revolver in his brother's, um, sort of, you know, drawer, dresser drawer or something and, uh, took it out to the common and put a bullet in it and spun the chambers and played Russian roulette. And, as Green tells it, um, he wrote about it, is that when the, you know he and this is a story Colin told and retold many many times. You know when he pulled the trigger and the hammer hit an empty chamber, he suddenly he went from being so bored to death that he was willing to take a risk on blowing his brains out to get you know the slightest kick out of anything, to suddenly seeing everything in this incredibly intense, meaningful you know way, and and you know everything was radiating this you know notion of possibilities, and it's sort of like well. It wasn't as if this vision, possibility, interest, and you know, wonder uh, just was turned on. It, what had happened is something happened to, to Green. Green, and Wilson says, is you know, the, the threat of having his brains you know, blown up, you know, forced. He concentrated. In, you know, that's the whole thrill of, of the Russian play. You sort of sort of kicked him out of this lethargy, you know, out of this kind of boredom. And for you know, a brief moment, you know, he, he had this vision. Uh, apparently, you know, Green wasn't able to hold on to it because he kept, you know, playing Russian roulette. I mean, he's very bad at it because he kept doing it apparently a few times. He kept doing it enough to get bored even with that. So you, you see, you sort of wonder. You know, he's incredibly lucky. <laughs> he was just really, really bad. And, and you know, he also less so Hardy. But Hardy is someone that Wilson says is another one who seems to have this vision of uh, of a kind of malevolent universe. You know, something even worse than the indifferent kind of universe of, of Camus. The world is actually actively out to get you. But again, you know, why why is it that that's taken seriously? And say, you know, the kind of absurd good news, Chesterton, or the sort of peak experiences of Maslow, or Blake's, you know, kind of vision. Uh, it's it has to be, you know, cultural, I guess, you know, and I, I guess it's also kind of atmosphere of suspicion. You know, the philosopher Paul Ricoeur, he talked about the hermeneutics of suspicion and how, you know, Marx, Freud. Nietzsche too, um, the, the very the, the critical, skeptical Nietzsche. Although Nietzsche himself is another one who has this vision of you know yesaying, vision of power, the, you know, and the Dionysian and this this kind of life affirmation, 
you know, he's someone who had the most wretched life possible. I mean, this is one of the funny things, you know, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche's sort of mentor originally, was absolutely pessimistic. He's another one who Wilson takes the task, and, you know, he completely condemned him as being, you know, sort of pointless and, you know, it was best not to be born. But he, he lived a, you know, fairly well off life. He was very comfortable and, you know, life and thinking about Nietzsche. This wretched creature around, lonely, moving from cheap little rented room to rented room, trying to find good weather to live in so he wouldn't have migraines and all that. And yet he develops this incredibly affirmative philosophy in the face of all this pain and suffering. So this is the kind of thing that Wilson wants to find a way to get to, is this, this kind of sudden, overwhelming eruption of yay-saying. It's, it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's this energy that we have inside us somewhere that... It's, it's, and it's not only that, because with that energy coming up, our intentionality grows, and we actually see, we perceive that the universe is meaningful. It's not just we feel really good, and it's still a meaningless universe. We actually see that there is this meaning there, that the low energy and the low pressure and the low intentionality has, has blinded us to. But now we can actually see that it's there, and what he wanted to do was develop a way to get to it, you know, intentionally. And, um, you know, he, he knew he was going against the tide. And, you know, this is something, I mean, I mean you know, in fact, there was a review of the book in the Times Literary Supplement, and it's actually a friend of mine who wrote it, but he was he completely dismissed it. And, but again, it's this whole idea that you can't take any of this seriously in, in, in the kind of official or orthodox uh, you know, literary world and all that. But, you know, Wilson did, didn't care. I mean, you know, he, 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 he wrote, he outwrote all of the critics of the time. And, you know, alongside the uh, official culture, the official uh, establishment has grown up this whole other, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, New Age or the alternative, you know, whatever, it's there. And uh, these are the people that are, you know, going to be interested in these ideas, and it doesn't matter anymore whether the academics are interested in them or not. Well, I think Wilson is going to get uh, discovered by the academics soon, because one of the things in academia is that um, one runs out of things to study. So you need to get new things. I mean, even academic esotericism on the rise for the last couple decades. Um, at one point, you know, um, academia wouldn't touch the esoteric, um, you know, with the barge pole, but now it's, um, you know, become most of the new work being done sort of in esoteric studies is kind of academic. So this is one reason why uh, Colin Stanley, uh, who's Colin Wilson's bibliographer, he established his Colin Wilson archive in Nottingham University. Uh, he donated a large collection of uh, Wilson's books of his own and has also been um, bringing uh, Wilson's papers uh, from Cornwall up there. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, and in fact, next year we're going to have the second um, Colin Wilson conference there. We had, there was one last year. But I, in a way, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for all that to happen, but it doesn't really matter. I, you know, I, I think in one way what's really important is that the people who understand these ideas and appreciate them, they're the ones who get to know about them. Not so much some entrenched kind of world that you need to convince uh, the importance of what you, you know, you, you want these ideas to reach people who were already kind of open to the sort of thing. Yeah, well, I think the, the key for me uh, personally coming through from reading Colin's work lies in, I'm paraphrasing your words now uh, from the book and also something you said a few minutes ago, that consciousness does not passively reflect the world that our perception is participatory, you know, it's it actively reaches out and grabs what's there. And mm. for me, that's summed up in a kind of a philosophical trope or meme of, of mine is that what you look for 
you find and also that you get what you give. And that's kind of things that I always have in mind. And that the, as far as the, this mass consciousness and where we're at and what the attitudes that dominate our thinking currently and have done for some time is actually in itself maladjusted and Mm. and suboptimal. But that, of course, is if it's the norm, then our tendency now is to try and adjust to that, to the, to the median, what is, what is seen as acceptable within a certain framework, within certain limits. And I remember reading the work of Joseph Chilton Pierce, another fellow who's sadly now passed on, but I did manage to interview uh, before mm. he died. And his work was all about how we become adjusted to a dysfunctional society and yes. are then seen as well adjusted because we're fitting into utter madness. Yes. No, I mean, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, Wilson, um, they said his, his first book is The Outsider and, um, that remained central, um, to all of his work, um, until his last years. And, um, so, and, but again, it's not, it's not sort of just the social misfit, uh, because I think the whole idea is that Wilson, Wilson's aware of the pressure. I mean, there's a great, there's a great deal of pressure. That's the whole thing. Life is tough, to put it very simply. Um, and it's increasingly become modern life is increasingly becoming more and more complex and abstract and um, sort of managed. You know, the individual is more and more looked at as a, a unit, you know, a functional unit to be sort of, you know, managed within the society to, you know, basically to the greater good of all. But again, it's uh, for Wilson the outsider, some someone who at, at first, you know, f- f- starts out feeling this alienation, but it's a peculiar kind of alienation because it is about this kind of need for this kind of hung- this hunger for a kind of purpose and meaning, a kind of seriousness about life. Um, so it's not just sort of like the beatnik or the hippie or the punk or the the, the sort of social social misfit. Okay, you have that, but it's also someone who wants to achieve something more than the conformity, but wants to do that by sort of pushing into a, an area where there's even more. It's it's a kind of self discipline. Uh, this is the this is fundamentally what Wilson arrives at as, as, as the kind of, um, at least the sort of, um, absolute beginning of any kind of resolution to the outsider's problems. He has to find a way to discipline his own consciousness so that he doesn't succumb to the despair and, and, and the kind of, uh, sense of meaninglessness or, or resentment. You know, that's the other thing too. You know, there are a lot of, uh, this is his area when he writes about crime. Because he t- he writes about these characters that are sort of in in a way in this kind of strange warped way they pursue crime and you know violent sexual crime uh, and and murder as, as almost a kind of creative act because um, their own sense of self their own sense of being has become so minimal uh, and so frustrated that it's only through this kind of radical kind of act that they achieve a brief sense of release and and uh, a sense of um, you know being authentic. He's not, he's not, he's not condoning that, obviously not, but he's saying, look, look to what extent human psychology can be driven if the kind of creative aspects of ourselves, the, 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 precisely what you're saying, the, the need not to, you know, find yourself to fit in, the, the, not to adjust to something that's evidently not creative and, 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 and not, not inducive to you. The outsiders are these characters who, 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 who seek this kind of deeper, or intense meaning, and in some ways, I mean, although Wilson started out as, as you can say, kind of a rebel, he then became quite disillusioned with characters that kind of stay at that level. I mean, he he definitely kind of 
outgrew the bohemian kind of world, or let's say the countercultural kind of world. Uh, as I said, his his later books became they they have a kind of um, what do you want to say? There's there there's almost a scientific character to them. Uh, but I don't mean that in in a, in a dry sense. I mean the sense that he's he's fascinated, he's interested, but he's 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 no longer sort sort of like. He doesn't complain about society so much as he puts more of the emphasis on the individual. I think this is what you got. The first two books, it, in fact, *Religion and the Rebel*. It, it, this is the this is his. Not that he's ever really pessimistic, but this is the book in which he really sort of talks about, you know, Western society is on its way out, and outsiders are pimples that appear on the face of you know this decaying world and all that. And he kind of wrote out a lot of his anger um, that he had, and it was also because you know he was. He, he realized that his fame was at first exhilarating and, and you know, absolutely intoxicating. Uh, it was brief, and then um, he found out that you know no one really understood the ideas he was talking about. He wasn't famous for the really for the ideas about the outsider. He was famous because he was very young when the book came out, and he was associated with these group of writers called the Angry Young Men. And he didn't really have anything to do with them so much because they were mostly concerned about social issues, whereas Wilson was really concerned about what. I said fundamentally, were sort of religious or existential issues, like the, what was the meaning of my existence. Um, whereas most of his contemporaries were more driven by sort of you know socialists or Marxists or <clears throat> some kind of um, political vision, and his his kind of views were considered to be sort of reactionary. Extending the positivity negativity thought experiment of like our you know the human condition and where we are and where we're going and how you know as i've said earlier how i took exception to this sort of overwhelming negativity mm. and just felt that, that that in itself was a choice and uh, that we you know we are free to uh, to choose how we respond to to circumstances and uh, an important aspect in colin's work is you know our ideas about who we are and what's possible and uh, he draws upon something or mentions something called the Jonah Complex was developed by an earlier writer uh, you can remind us who that was and essentially that we're we have this sort of like fear of greatness or possibility what we might be able to do and that's very much a kind of a, a peer pressure thing and in, in an environment of like negativity then people who are being positive as we mentioned earlier in itself can be seen as kind of like oh well you know yeah that's all well and good but actually life is serious mm-hmm. and, and oh and that's strange in itself because you mentioned earlier seriousness about life but that is seen as almost like well if you're serious about life then somehow you have to be pessimistic and restricted uh, but that again is just one view that that just doesn't hold up and i think a lot of people are actually afraid of what they might be able to do and also the idea of them maybe not doing it or not achieving it or not even going for it. So therefore, it's easier to imagine that it can't be done because it wouldn't it be awful to think that you could have done X, Y, and Z or been X, Y, and Z, but you didn't even try. So better to imagine that you just can't do it. Whereas, as you point out in highlighting in Colin's work and in your own, actually ceding control and taking that attitude can be actually catastrophic. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, um, this is something that different writers, different thinkers have, have pointed out. You say the Jonah complex, I believe this comes from Abraham Maslow, and it's the, the biblical story where Jonah um, is trying to run away from his fate, fated to be a prophet, but he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want he doesn't want the responsibility. Maslow sort of illustrated illustrated this by telling a story of how when uh, he was teaching class psychology, he asked, you know, who who among you 
believe that you're going to make some, you know, vital contribution to, you know, your field of study. And nobody raised their hand. They said, well, if you're not, then who? It, it, the whole idea, you know, there's a certain diffidence where you're not supposed to feel that you're going to. And, and if, if you do, you're, you're sort of seen as being sort of, you know, conceited or um, somehow, you know, feeling superior and so on and all that. But Wilson writes about uh, this kind of uh, feeling in, in uh, a book called, um, well, in the UK it was called The Age of Defeat. Uh, I first read it in the U.S. Um, under the title The Stature of Man. Uh, that was the U.S. publishers wanted something a bit more upbeat. But it was fundamentally about sort of the loss of the hero and this kind of rise of the conf of conformity. Sort of, it sort of charts the rise of the kind of um, keeping up with the Joneses sensibility. Loss of the individual and the individual becoming much more of a company man, the organization man sort of thing. And this kind of... Um, the individual is insignificant. That, that sensibility infecting, you know, the literature of the time. You know, he you know, pe people you mentioned Green, but also characters, you know, writers like Huxley and Lawrence and Hardy and there's the Sartre. Samuel Beckett is, is one of his bêtes you know, the, uh, the Irish writer famous for Waiting for Godot and other sort of works of kind of absurdist black uh, theater. Um, no, I mean, he absolutely detested um, Beckett's work. He thought he was a nice guy. He met him, and he he, he, said he felt he felt um, you know too polite to say anything about, about how much he hated his work to him. But again, this is this kind of vision of meaninglessness and life being a kind of joke. No, Wilson rebelled against that, and he wanted to develop a kind of vision of a sort of successful character, not successful in, in you know sense of being rich or getting the girl and all that, but having a consciousness that doesn't fail. And he he sort of looks back to the early romantics and the sort of first wave romantics who who were who were tight. They were quite strong and powerful, and they confronted the world. But then after that, um, it seemed to be that uh, yes, that was all nice. That sounded great, but actually, no. In the end, sort of the world wins. Uh, the world is being this dim, vast veil of tears and all that. And this is something that again that that whole idea of seriousness being sort of linked to a sense of defeat and pessimism and all that, which I guess I mean Wilson can appreciate the sort of kind of undefeated vision of, say, Hemingway, when Hemingway says a man can be destroyed but not defeated. And he says, yes, he can, you know, he, he that, that toughness, that, that kind of stoicism, he, you know, he can appreciate that. But he said, what, what if you don't want to be destroyed or defeated? <laughs> you know, and, and again, there's a whole canon. One could, one could put together, and that's what Wilson does in many of his books, puts together a canon of these kind of optimistic thinkers. And again, they're not optimistic thinkers and they're not Pollyannas. I mean, Nietzsche's no Pollyanna. Wilson's no Pollyanna. I mean, he, you know, he writes about um, um, sex murders, encyclopedias of crime, and intensely aware of the darkest aspect of of uh, existence. So it isn't this kind of blind optimism uh, where everything is is hunky dory. No, it's just it's just a, it's 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 just a, 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 a in the face of all that. It's 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 a vision of strength in the face of that, and it's a vision of of, of a kind of ultimate good, or at least. Of, of a kind of ultimate triumph of, 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 over evil, over the darkness and all that. But what he sees in, as you're saying, what he sees in you know, modern literature is this kind of, kind of canonization of the pessimistic vision. And as you say, it's, it becomes identified with being realistic and being serious. And all. Uh, but I mean, but now, but even that kind of tragic view has become, say, you know, so, you know, with postmodernism, it's just a kind of joke, you know, life is meaningless, yeah, so what else is new? Beyond even the kind of tragic view that Wilson was um, 
trying to uh, rally against. And, you know, and also in, you know, in philosophy, you know, he was writing about existentialism and he also wrote a bit later years about postmodernism and deconstructionism, both of which, not surprisingly, he was very critical about. I recall, I very well recall being at school and growing up with this kind of sense of impossibility that we'd been born into defeat that I just couldn't identify with, but that just seemed to be the dominant paradigm. And it was, for me, it was summed up as when I was a child and actually had a very happy upbringing, um, despite uh, parents splitting up. Um, but the phrase that I remember most when I was running around wide-eyed, full of wonder at the world, was, uh, don't get too big for your boots. You know, uh. it was kind of like, yeah, okay, but maybe rein in what you think, uh, you know, because, you know, other people are kind of looking on and they might not approve uh, if you think you're great or you want to do something or you've yeah. got something ambitious. It's like, yeah, okay, okay. But, you know, just bear yeah. in mind that, bear in mind that other people haven't really done anything and they never really will. So you don't want to make them feel bad. So maybe just keep all that to yourself. And uh, it's like the crabs in a bucket thing, isn't it? You know, sort of uh, if one crab's about to get out of the bucket, then some of the other crabs will try and pull that crab back down. No, you're not getting out of the bucket because you'll show the rest of us up. And uh, I remember yeah. one interview in particular towards the end of school with uh, the, our biology teacher, mm. who was also the careers counsellor. And I was so into music when I was a teenager, as a lot of teenagers are. I'm sure you were exactly the same. And uh, I said to him, you know, was, the interview was like, okay, you're leaving soon. What do you think they might like to do? Can we help with that? And I said, well, you know, I'm really not sure about anything specific, but I would love to do something in music because that's what really gives my life meaning. It's what I'm really passionate about. Yep. And his essential response was, perhaps you should be a bit more realistic. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was 10 years later, I joined a successful band, sold a million, and it was kind of like, well, there you are. And that's because I didn't pay any attention. Did you send him a copy? I didn't know. I think he might have been dead at that point, so oh. I, didn't, I didn't want to upset his widow. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, you know, what can you say? Um, well, this stu the, the point being that this stuff is inculcated in us from the earliest days. No, it's true. I, I, th I mean... People often say to me, you know, oh, you know, because I, I live in England, you know, oh, yes, you know, it, 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 we're always taught to, you know, know our place and so and so. But you Americans, you know, you, you just go <laughs> through and all that. But, you know, it's not really the case. I mean, there is that sense of Americans can do anything, all that kind of thing. But there's just as many diffident, lazy and sort of um, basically scared, you know, people there as here. And um, what I was going to say, you know, there's that uh, Heinrich Gibson, the, you know, the... the um, playwright he said you know you want to be yourself you know watch out for your friends you know, people want to keep you in some some place and i had a similar experience when i was um teenager saying how i wanted to do music and blah blah blah, blah. and an uncle who said oh you're never going to do anything and i think i did send him a copy of something but you know i mean that's i mean wilson faced that himself i mean he, he writes about all these year, long years of um, apprenticeship and he was learning to be a writer. I mean, it probably, you know, again, that, that's probably even more, you think of the kind of kitchen sink scenario of, uh, you know, Billy Lyre, let's say, or something like that, where, uh, you know, someone's got dreams. I mean, Billy Lyre, you know, you know, that film, uh, you know, so, you yeah. know, uh, Tom Courtney, um, you know, he's someone who's got the dreams, but he doesn't transform them into reality. And when he, when he comes to face up the possibility of doing it, he, he, he himself doesn't have 
the kind of courage or strength or whatever you need to actually transform it. Whereas Wilson himself in his own life, and again, this is something about him. I mean, you know, not only did he write about these outsider characters, he himself lived that life. He left school at 16 uh, or 17 or whatever, and then tramped around and, you know, was in and out of the RAF and then slept rough and then hitchhiked all over, you know, France and England and um, wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and, you know, never stayed at a job long enough to, to get bored from it and and all that and i tell that story in the early chapters of the book so i mean he he you know he he lived the sort of thing he was writing about and he had to face all of that resistance and and even even more in many ways after he had actually made it i mean imagine you know the resistance you 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 faced by in your early years just for your immediate social world and your family and all that and then actually one morning you wake up and the country is resounding with your name with praise about you and all the Newspapers, which is what happened for Wilson when the outsider came out. You know, every newspaper in the country was saying exact word was agreeing with him, something that he knew for a long time, but it took, you know, 10 years for others to recognize that he was a genius and all that sort of thing. And then, though, they turn against him. So you, you would think, oh, that way, you know, you've overcome it finally, but no, no, it's, it's, um, so, um, but, you know, um, that's just there. And, and, he himself, he says, he's of he's very Darwinian when it comes to sort of creativity and writers, and he believes in the survival of the fittest. So he doesn't think things should be made easy. Even things outsiders have it quite easy today. But still, um, you know, it's basically up to. He, he, as I said before, he he puts the onus more on the individual than the society. Get over your self pity and all that, and get out there and do it, rather than complain that oh, you know, I I. I I really want to be creative or whatever it is, but, you know, I, I can't do this, I can't do that because the society holds me back or something like that. Um, he was very much about, you know, the individual taking responsibility and, you know, taking the risks involved in doing that. And not everybody can. It's one of the things, too. It's something that, um, I mean, you, you can go out and, you know, be successful, perhaps, and popular and all that, but to do the sort of thing he's talking about is not necessarily the same closing thought perhaps would be you know with great freedom comes great responsibility but with great responsibility if you take it can come great freedom and uh, i mean gary we've got a lot more to say about i know that's just chapter one yeah exactly we've got a lot more to say about the life and work of colin wilson and indeed your own work so we're going to turn this into a little bit of a mini series but um for today we're going to wrap this one up. Just to remind everyone, we've been talking about your book published last year. It's called Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. Uh, that's widely available. And uh, I say people should, uh, this is part one, people can tune in for part two. It will be available very soon. Before we wrap up for today, um, is there anything you'd like to share? I mean, obviously your website, um, just anything else you'd like to put out there. Uh, just if you you know want to know anything more about uh, my work or Collins, uh, yeah, as um, Greg said, my website's uh, GaryLockman.co.uk. You can find links to mm, this book, Beyond the Outsider, and and other books as well. Splendid. And uh, would you? Is there a particular Colin Wilson website that you'd recommend? Colin Wilson World is the one that I'm aware of. If people want to immediately dive into some of his work, um, would you? Point yeah, it's Colin Wilson World. I think there's Colin Wilson Online, and I think there's another one called um, I think Phenomenology of Excess. But I'm wondering if that may be Colin Wilson World. There's also a Facebook, um, and uh, if anyone's interested. Um, 
if you check out Pauper's Press, um, they have a website. If you just put Pauper's Press in, the, in Google, you'll, you'll, you'll find it. Uh, this is Colin Stanley, um, and he publishes a lot of uh, rare, sort of Wilsoniana uh, sorts of things, and you might be interested, you know, which the, uh, the real connoisseurs out there might uh, want to know about that. Okay, well, listeners can find all of the above-mentioned links on the interview page for this show at LegalizeFreedom.com. So in the meantime, until next time, thanks once again, Gary, for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you for having me, Greg.